0: and welcome to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Bilecki, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers have been recommended to me by the previous writers who have been on the show to talk about their writing. For instance, this month's guest, Ash Miranda, was recommended to me by Olivia Kronk, so if you liked that episode, you'll like this one, and if you like this one and you haven't heard the other one, go back and give that a listen. Ash Miranda is a non-binary Latinx poet from Chicago. They received an MFA in writing from SAIC and currently focuses their poetry on exploring their gender identity, trauma, grief, and activism. We primarily talk about work from 13 Jars, How Chiactani Learned to Speak, which was put out by Another New Calligraphy, and Dolores in Spanish is Pain, Dolores in Lolita is a Girl, which was put out by Glass Poetry Press. If you'd like to help out the show, the best way to do it is at patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. For two bucks a month, you can often get early episodes and some writing. Five dollars a month, you can get the same thing and even more writing. And and maybe there will be a third tier sometime soon with some more surprises. So keep an eye on that. That's patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. Or for a one-time little tip or donation or whatever you want to call it, paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe. Now, without further ado, let's get into my conversational dash people who listen to the show know that my uh knowledge of poetry is is not deep or wide um and i think i think your two chat books that i read in preparation of this conversation here are the first chat books that i've maybe ever read um the chat book as a form is very interesting to me i'd love to know uh, like your take on that form.
1: Yeah. So, um, for me, I think the, I have a tendency to prefer themes over, um, just kind of writing individual poems. I tend to always be writing towards a general idea, like grouping of ideas. Um, So the chat books seemed much more natural to me. Um, There are some people who prefer fuller length poetry collections where it's, you know, a ton of random poems that they've written over the years. Some of them might be connected. Some of them may not. Um, Chat books tend to generally be like, here's a grouping of poems that fit together either for one reason or another. Maybe it's a theme. Maybe it's in it's the way they're written. Maybe uh i mean like sometimes realistically sometimes you throw in a poem to reach a page length (laughs) Mm. account (laughs) um but uh books tend to be shorter they tend to be less than you know 30 pages most of the time um and they for me at least it usually is like a the way that i like to think about it is like it's like my version of a concept album (laughs) okay (laughs) um at least that's how i approach it um so I generally have, like, an idea going into uh, working on a chat book, and I look at where my poetry is taking me and, like, where I'm kind of focused on, and I think, like, hey, is this, uh, this going to be a chat book? But I always... At least I don't know how other poets always tend to um, look at it. Some people just kind of like, I have all these poems that I publish that I think go well together and I think would be a good publication, would be a good chapbook. My general take on it is like, I have this idea. I have this like very loose discussion that I want to have with this chapbook. And I am using my poetry to further that discussion. (laughs) I
0: gotcha you hit you You hit right to my core when you said concept album oh. <laughs> i used to listen to a lot of those i was a big coheed and cambria fan back in my youth oh, yeah. and that whole thing and i'm glad yeah. that I, i'm not being met with dead silence it makes my heart very happy <laughs> um, yeah my
1: friends are still massive coheed
0: fans. oh good oh then <laughs> then i feel at home um okay so that makes sense um one of, one of my writing professors back in school did a, uh, a chat book like the year I graduated and I went to one of his readings and that was kind of the same sort of thing. It was all like circus-themed poems, but the circus wasn't really a circus sort of thing. It was either a simile or a metaphor. I guess the jury's out. <laughs> um,
1: we'll have to look to Twitter to see what they yeah. think.
0: <laughs> the, uh, I like the idea in, in 13 Jars of putting everything into jars i like that imagery of like putting things like compartmentalizing
1: yeah um and i think that it interestingly enough like the so that one's based off of loosely based off of a version of a uh, mayan mythology about the moon and one of the stories is that um the moon is kind of like a genderless creature it's just the moon um and the sun uses like a hoof print uh to give her a vagina so then she is now a woman and they have a relationship and her father finds out and gets very angry and attempts to uh shoot an arrow at the sun and misses and pierces the moon and she gets broken up into 13 pieces um hence the 13 jars Um, And the idea is that it's, you know, um, obviously a lot of it has to do with like the lunar cycles and the relationships that they have to like, you know, how they portray, um, or how they see the, the female role, um, like culturally and, you know, like that's culturally my background as well. Like, um. So I'm Guatemalan and Mexican and stuff like that. So I thought it was really interesting, but kind of I wanted to end up tackling this idea of like dealing with um, gender identity and sexual assault um, and PTSD in this kind of like different fashion. And I thought that the jar thing was some some somewhat appropriate, kind of like how you put pieces away of yourself um, without even recognizing it sometimes. Um, but also a lot of it's like a commentary on just like the the roles of women
0: (laughs) right yeah i i caught that um i really liked um jar two the the formatting um just like the listing of of drugs and how they sort of like flip onto themselves
1: thank you you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) i've i've always been um I tend to do it. Perhaps uh, I've been doing it again much more, but I've always been the type that likes to play around with the page. Like I've, um, I, I'm, I don't tend to like just you know a center aligned poem. Um, I I mean like I love reading them. I think so many people have written like beautiful um, pieces, but I I don't know. Like I like things to move around
0: <laughs> right. a little
1: bit. I like things to. Um, explore the page, to do things with the page, to force the reader sometimes to do things that they are not used to confronting or visually confronting to some extent. Um, I think it's like, at least for me, I think it's always been really captivating to see how people play around with like page space and um, spacing and white space in general
0: yeah olivia kronk who was on a couple months ago who suggested you for the show her poems i don't know if i talked to her about it on the show but her poems do kind of the same thing where it's they kind of like the the stanzas like zigzag across the Mm. page a little bit and um this show's no stranger to people who do weird things with with uh, text on pages and stuff with, um, all the inside the castle people I've had and Mike Correo and, and whatnot. Um, I think in that, uh, you do something that I I really like. And when I try to do poetic type things, um, I'm looking at jar three now, like, um, uterus us, you, um, playing around with with words and how, how they sound. You did that in uh, Dolores too, where
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, like masquerade and massacre are put right next to each other in a line. Um, that like that's very close to like a thing I would write in a notebook, um, and then seeing it fleshed out into a poem is really nice to see too. Um, so I'm curious to know like wh- how how you compose. Um, poetry like both mechanically like do you write or do you type and then sort of like how you see words
1: I uh, do a mix Um, sometimes I type things sometimes I will write things Um, it really depends on kind of like the situation or where I'm at and things like that but for the most part I think I I like writing because visually I can just write where I want things to be and then I can figure it out later when I'm typing how to make that happen. Um, <laughs> for For a very long time, it was very difficult because like, you know, resources sometimes aren't always available to you. So you, you don't always um, have the ability to play around with um, text as much as you would like at times. Now things are a lot easier, I think, honestly, with all of the programs that exist. Right. Um, but I think that like generally for me, um, the I've always enjoyed the idea of repetition. I've always also had a uh, personal issue <laughs> on my own end with getting words that are similar um, kind of mixed up and, when I was younger. Mm. And I think that when, as I got older, um, I kind of enjoyed the idea of finding those words, and similarities between them sound wise, um, but realistically, like the thing that really pushed me to think about like how things sound next to each other in this repetition was, um, I took a sound class. Um, hmm. Despite the fact that I had no experience whatsoever um, in sound at all, um, I had a professor who was a sound artist slash kind of experimental artist who was like, hey, try doing this. And I think for the first time, that was like the first time where I really confronted how language sounds because I've always been interested in language and I've always been interested in translation of feelings is how I always said it. Like the idea of like, how do we really capture how we're feeling using language when language is not sometimes always accurate or always maybe perhaps carrying the weight that we need it to at times. Mm. Um, so I, I think that like for me, honestly, like making these comparisons that are both sound and also term wise, like it kind of puts at least to me it, it kind of restructures how we're approaching the the terms or restructure how we're approaching the ideas
0: okay, yeah, I gotcha um it kind of reminds me some of some of the the latter jar poems remind me of uh the term clanging um uh, with mm. with regard to like uh, people with schizophrenia and and related sort of mental things. How you kind of talk in a circle with like rhyming words or words that sound very similar. Um, was that something that you've encountered or or played around with?
1: Yeah. So I. Um, so I, I. This is kind of like well known, at least on my like social media profiles and stuff but personally for me it's like I deal with PTSD I deal with anxiety I've always had an issue um, in general with just like being able to articulate or being able to have a conversation or be able to like parse out my own thoughts at times just because of how hazy things have gotten (laughs) over the years and how things and how you approach things and for me a lot of it was kind of like this is how my brain functions. Let me put how I'm thinking on a page and try to see if I can make it make sense to some way, because I think that when you're dealing with um, mental health issues in particular, um, and obviously every disorder is going to be different, but I think that there is some aspect of it where you do think in circles, you do question the thoughts you're having, the language of a that you're using uh, the reality around you, obviously for some people, much more extreme versions of it, but like with disassociation and things to that extent, um, those are things that I, I can't almost not have influenced my work Uh, for a long time. I tried to like separate the two because I was like, no, I don't want this stuff to be in my work. And then I realized that you can't really get rid of that stuff. Like you can't um, you can't stop the natural progression of just how your brain operates. And so once I realized um, that I had a tendency of doing that, and I also, I, I just love also alliteration too. Like I like the, the way things look visually and sound next to each other but it does h- kind of help with that like repetition and almost cyclical feeling of experiences language kind of everything um and i do try to mimic that to the best of my ability um in my own work
0: yeah okay I think, I think we're, we're on the same page there. I think, um, I remember reading something somewhere the other day where a person was saying like, how often does somebody write the way you actually see the world? And I, I think that's sort of similar to, to what you're getting at there. And I don't know. I feel like that works, um, with the way that you format the text too, that, like, um, having things bounce around both sound-wise, um, and on the page, and, and, or in your mouth if you're reading out loud, too. Uh, I don't read poetry out loud as much as I used to. I remember back when I was in college, like, every poem that I had to read for one of my writing classes, I'd try to read it out loud once, or at least kind of, like, whisper it under my breath if I were in public. (laughs) But, yeah i like that and and just the kind of the idea that like your blank verse poetry that's kind of the the rote way of doing things like not rhyming um but still allowing the joy of playing with the way language sounds enter into your poetry is something that i admire and want to see more of um yeah
1: yeah no i i I always at least feel like, like kind of jumping off that idea of not, you know, always seeing people write what they are thinking. Um, I I tend to kind of go just like, if it doesn't make sense, <laughs> um, that's okay, because I can go back and edit it into something. But I tend to try to stay true to like how my thought process is, because I think that When you are trying to, especially since I am like concept driven, when I'm trying to like it usually there's there's like something I'm trying to tackle with each piece that I'm working on, like with um, 13 Jars in particular, I was trying to tackle all of this uh, imagery around like, you know, essentially sexual assault that was really, really not being discussed um and kind of like play around and figure out what how i felt about it and figure out also like how it, it was influencing um the way that we talk the way that we interact and I, it was like right i think i finished my manuscript um probably like a year before the me too movement hit oh uh, so it was, it was one of those things where it's like, Oh, see, like, I'm not the only one who wants to talk about these things. Right. <laughs> um, I'm, it, like, I don't feel as, um, uh, kind of a uh, trap, but I think like uh, a big primary motivator tends to be like, I don't have the terminology to, uh, deal with this. So I need to figure out how to create something that, can explain it or capture the idea to some extent um or confront at least you know how i'm feeling um like with dolores like i went in like knowing full well that i was just like upset in general about like the concept of um you know the internet version of the lolita and stuff and how that became very very popular to some extent like you would see stores like online stores that are like mostly targeted towards young adults um or you know like early 20s things like that when I started writing that that was kind of like the the big thing where they they would often use the lolita idea as being like oh yeah very sexual very like you want to be like innocent and coy but still like a sexual being and it was kind of butting up against this idea of like that um like that soft uh kind of aesthetic like you know really pastel-y type of thing that was starting to get popular um but also with like this kind of like hidden edge to it and so when I saw like the rise of that and then also like songs that were referencing it because I have a reference to like Lana Del Rey Mm -hmm. which a lot of people always think is like a dig at her like and it's like not oh it's not necessarily a dig it's just hey, she has this song that does this exact thing that I'm, you know, talking about. Um, and for me, it was like, what, it, like, how does, like, I was trying to find a way to, like, tackle this idea of, like, this pop cultural um, icon, essentially, that is Lolita because of a novel about a, you know, 12-year-old girl who gets, who is being, you know, stalked by a pedophile. How did it turn into, um let's mass produce this, let's mass market this, like, you want to be this thing. Um, And so for me, it was very much like, oh, yeah, I I, I don't have, I don't know how to kind of have this conversation in a more um, social setting, so I'll have it in my poetry.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I like that a lot, that you said earlier that you didn't have the terminology for it and i think that that's something that a lot of people suffer from i feel like a lot of bad takes on the internet um are people who who maybe mean well but don't have the terminology oh yeah exploring it in art where you edit it first hopefully a little bit (laughs) and are having other people look at it and have time to sit with it to sort of just you know get the raw emotion out of there uh is is a really fantastic idea the lolita thing too is interesting i it took me a long time to buy the book because the copy i kept seeing was the one where the cover art was like a photograph of very clearly a little girl's mouth like the corner of it (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I remember watching a YouTube video about Nabokov a while back where he, like the original printing of the book, the first edition is like ugly olive green and there's no art or, on it or anything. It's just like a gross green book. And he wanted the book itself to like not look appealing at all. Right. Because you know, the the book isn't about things that are appealing uh, yeah, and so whoops, that that didn't really go. Artist intent didn't really get uh, followed up there.
1: Yeah, and I and there's been kind of like a lot of different reasons for that because I I know that you know Nabokov himself saw you know his own protagonist as being monstrous. Like he's like this is not a good dude, <laughs> right? You know? And he and he often grappled with the the. <sighs> I guess like the ramifications of having written a character like that, and the you know impact the novel had as well. Um, but honestly, I think the thing that really pushed it over the edge was Kubrick's. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh,
0: which I have not seen. <laughs>
1: um, because that's that is probably I mean like they cast um, somebody who's you know much older. Um, so they kind of age her up a little bit to be so it's it's still gross, but it's not as bad. <laughs> like you. It's all bad, but right. I, I guess like the, the idea behind it is is that if we age her up, it's not as horrifying. So people will find this appealing. And I think that the, that imagery is the imagery that kind of stuck around um, the longest when it comes to like Lolita and how they approach that novel where she's so much more um hypersexualized than she should be um yeah
0: yeah the, that the screen caps as i'm looking it up look almost age
1: appropriate
0: some of them like
1: yeah almost yeah I, like I, if, if you squint and also for the time period probably a lot more age appropriate right. than uh
0: yeah it being in black and white like i can see her being 21 in this picture maybe and him being like 35, like eh, it's sus, but okay. Like I get it. Um and this this Lolita uh reminds me of a tweet that you uh made just before uh we started our call about Elliot Page and Hard Candy, and I found watching Hard Candy was was a really tough movie for me to watch too. Um kind of before it goes off the rails, but um Yeah, the the Lolita obsession and and retellings is something that I guess once you start to think about how many there are, there's quite a lot.
1: Oh, yeah. And there was like even a few other things that um, I ended up sticking just to the Lolita thing, but there was like a few other things that I was like kind of playing around with. Like there's the Oingo Boingo song, like (laughs) little girls. Um, I'm
0: not familiar with with that.
1: Um, it, it is, um, basically the lyrics are, um, that I like little girls. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Um, so, and like the, uh, I, I, it's, it's so, um, like it was one of those songs that like I I remember I was gonna like play around with it to utilize it in some way and I was just kind of like now nah, this this song is like way too <laughs> creepy for me just to like redeem even... it yeah like I can't with um even though it's not like I I I don't dislike Uncle Bowling <laughs> and as weird as it is I've always been into kind of like their their weirdness but that might just be because it's a it's Danny Elfman's br- uh like Danny Elfman works on it and then also mm-hmm. his brother okay. um so it's kind of got that weird circusy vibe sometimes
0: yeah yeah I'm that's an interesting uh I didn't know that about Oingo Boingo I like I I'm aware of some of their songs and obviously uh I've watched movies so I I'm I know Danny Elfman's stuff but I didn't know that song at all um Kind of circling back to um, 13 Jars You Finished right before the Me Too movement. And then Dolores has How I Feel in 2017 as a poem title.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Which, yeah, it's weird how we think about time. My my wife and I were like, oh man, it's already been like two months since um, RGB died. Um, But it also feels like last Wednesday was four years ago. And reading that poem it's like oh that's right three years ago was four lifetimes ago
1: yes absolutely yeah that's that's like one where i probably in hindsight should have titled it how i feel in the 2020s 20 like 20x um because i didn't you know i mean at the time um I think I wrote it actually in 2016. I'm pretty sure I wrote it in November of 2016. And then I changed the title um, once I started uh, editing and sending it out and stuff like that. But the it really has felt like a lifetime this last few years. <laughs> like a, just monumental on so many different levels. Um, and I think that that in particular, like with, with like the Me Too movement with and it just kind of happened that I ended up writing um, these pieces about, um, you know, confronting rape culture, confronting, you know, um, how we sexualize individuals, um, confronting the, you know, assault in general. Um, And I was doing a lot of that work for a very long time, just kind of because it was not only just like part of daily conversation and, you know, part of our administration, uh, part of everything um, that it kind of, it was kind of hard not to like comment on it. Um, I was, I did this erasure for an anthology that was a bunch of statements from the Me Too, um, like, you know, time period when everybody Was putting out their PR statements about how they apologize for their actions and all this stuff. So, um, Isabel O'Hare, who's like a really excellent writer, um, you know, put together these erasures that are absolutely fantastic. And they um, ended up doing an anthology, like a editing an anthology, where they're like, "Hey, we want to see other people's erasures on this." Um, On and I think that the one of the first ones they did was either i think it was kevin spacey's it was either uh i think it was kevin spacey's apology Mm. um and then they did louis ck and then a bunch of other like prominent uh figures like pr statements like erasures that were kind of highlighting Um, what they weren't saying like it it was interesting and i ended up doing one for brand new because brand new um yeah still one of my favorite bands as hard as it is to kind of deal with um what occurred but like the information about him um you know grooming an underage girl and all of that and then he basically came out and admitted all of it and i remember just being really frustrated at that and because you know, that was a band that I always turned to when I was having difficulties. And then to know that this was, you know, a person who was taking advantage of others and hurting others was difficult. So I, I did an erasure for that. And I um, it was in the anthology, which is a beautiful anthology. If um, it's full color, it's amazing. Like so many different artists are in it that did so much great work. Um, but I think that that was something that was like on everyone's mind, everyone was talking about it, you couldn't escape it. And for a very long time, I kind of thought like, well, that's the majority of what my writing is kind of focused on. Um, And then things took a quick turn for me um, personally. And so now most of my writing is in a different direction, (laughs) completely. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, no, like it's, it's, it's it, it was for me it was a lot of it was just kind of circumstance. I just so happened to be working on these things as this stuff was happening outside in the world. And there were times where it was a bit overwhelming. There were times where I felt like I wasn't going to finish some of these projects. I wasn't gonna finish my chat book because I was just a little bit burnt out on dealing with these things and having these conversations and seeing people have these conversations and feeling like there wasn't a lot of progress with it. Um, Like, despite the fact that we were having these conversations and being more upfront with the fact that, you know, sexual assault happens so frequently and sexual harassment happens so frequently to men, women, you know, non-binary individuals, trans folk, like everyone um, has to deal with this, but we're still not prepared to have that conversation. And so once the conversation does start occurring and I'm writing all this stuff at the same time, it felt a a little bit like... um, it felt a little bit overwhelming at times
0: right now i can believe it and then some of that stuff too um it almost feels like the timing is is weird just in like how it will be received when people read it you know like mm-hmm. even though you're writing it before everything you know like culturally is happening like before this is really in the zeitgeist uh people are going to be, maybe be seeing it like right after like as the burnout's happening um and i i find that um to be just like uh something something very odd to have to deal with
1: yeah it was just kind of it it was it was strange <laughs> to kind of have happen And to have that like um, occurring at the same time. Um, But it also, I think, pushed me to be more upfront and more vocal about things and to participate a lot more, um, which was a good thing because I think ultimately at the end of the day, one of the biggest things that you really need is a support group or at least people who feel the same way or have felt the same way. And I think that, hopefully I've done that with my work where I've, you know, helped people feel like, Hey, I'm not alone. I've, I've also dealt with these things and um, I am also angry about it, or I'm also, you know, conflicted about certain imagery or certain, you know, popular things, or I'm conflicted about the portrayals of how this looks or how we, you know, engage with these concepts and um, you know, I think that it's it's good and bad. You can get overwhelmed by it. But I, I do think that it did help a lot of people kind of be able to say, like, hey, you know, everyone's having this conversation. I feel confident. I feel more at ease with having the conversation, too.
0: Yeah. Uh, you. To go along with that, earlier you were talking about how when we were talking about language and, and the sound of words together and things like that, you were kind of talking about how it's just like push and pull as you're like working with a concept, trying not to get, let things get away from you. Um, and kind of keeping that in mind with what we were talking about, I'm interested in what your editing process is like.
1: Um, I feel like my editing process is longer than my writing process. Sure. <laughs> um, I always, I, 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 know a lot of people, probably say that. Um, generally, my editing process um, is I, I I am the kind of person that needs to like physically have something on page. I need to be able to like lay things out, <laughs> mm. figure out what works together, figure out like what my words, what my language is doing. Um, but my editing process tends to be more of a culling process for me. Like what is unnecessary? What, what do I not need? What have I done too much of what um like you know what realistically is just too much or too off base um sometimes it's just like like I'll edit a poem and I'll be like I like this I like this I like this I don't I hate this entire line I hate this word I hate like mm. I I I need to figure out a better way to either approach this idea a better way to phrase it Maybe I need to take it out completely. Maybe I need to just put the poem away. Um, but generally with editing, I tend to be, honestly, I'm just looking for, for things to be a little bit more coherent with one another, especially when I'm editing a chat book. When I'm editing a chat book, my, my intent, especially since I'm thinking like concept album, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my my intent is like do these things um Work together? Are these things actually cohesive? Is it getting my message across? Is it focusing on these core ideas that I'm, you know, trying to tackle? Um, With 13 Jars, it was both like a retelling of, you know, this Mayan myth, but also a confrontation of, you know, gender roles, a confrontation of how we approach, um, or how we uh, kind of, you, like, what kind of language we utilize around assault versus uh consent um and then also just a a lot of imagery regarding you know um some things that are are very culture specific at times but i wanted to make sure that it was still accessible um to anyone who was reading it so just making sure that it you know, made sense for what it was. There there are lots of poems that got cut out from that one. Um, some of them that have been published where it was just like, no, it's not fitting with the the style. Like I had this one poem called um, uh Tani Goes uh, to Speak to the Sun. And it's this poem about like a conversation um, that she has with the sun um, about the concept of value and property. Um, and it was a poem that I had published, uh, by White Stag, you know, magazine, and it was originally in my manuscript. And after reading my manuscript and looking at all the parts and thinking about how the jars operated, cause for me, um, I went into it thinking like, okay, each jar has a point to it almost like each jars tackling an idea to some extent, um, like, you know, the jar twos, uh, dealing with like the medications. These are all medications that have to do with either hormone related medications or medications that are um, for pregnant women, things like that. Um, And then also mixed in, there are a few mental, you know, related Mm -hmm. uh, medications and stuff like that. So you get kind of like a gambit. Um, And that was like a, a decision that I made. And then when I was kind of relooking at this poem that I had written and had published, I was like, this poem is not going to work. It's not like, even though it is about the topic, it is the characters that I'm using. It is something that was part of the process. It doesn't work with what I'm doing now. So I have to just eject it. And I didn't, I didn't really think too hard about like, Ooh, I need to replace it with something equivalent because I was like, well, no, it just doesn't fit because the things that I need to be in the chat book and the language that I'm using are it's doing what it needs to do, so I don't need to replace it. I just need to be okay with the fact that it's not necessary anymore. It was a stepping stone to the ideas that I had, um, and it definitely was an important aspect because I kept returning to this you know, concept, this, this particular myth um, or iteration of the myth. Um, and so I think that for me the editing process is a lot of just being – aware of what my work is trying to do and like I wish it was like an easy answer like when people ask me like oh yeah like how do you edit and it's like honestly you have to figure out what works for yourself <laughs> right yeah like, abs- absolutely and, 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 Go ahead. and you have to be critical of your work you have to see and and look at like what works and what doesn't work there are poems in um you know both my chat books that originally were in like the first round um, I remember before Dolores got published, um, I had the order completely different of the poems, not like completely different, but I had a lot of differences. And I remember reaching out to one of my, really uh, my best friend, um, who's also a poet, Rin. And I was like, hey, help me figure out, like, tell me what you think of this, um, which again is absolutely probably a poet's best friend is always going to be somebody else who's willing to look at your work and give you like legitimate feedback and be honest about what you're doing and she was just like I don't think these poems work next to each other like what about this arrangement um and honest that was the arrangement that I ended up going with because I was like absolutely you're right there was like some things I was like no I want these particular poems together or I want this to particularly be here but for the most part i i thought you know like oh yeah you're right and i wanted to i was gonna start off um my chat book with a different poem and then i realized that i wanted something that was a lot more intense up front yeah. <laughs> like hey we're we're getting into this shit like right now there's <laughs> there's there 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 is no warning signs there is no nothing we're just going to jump right into it and um i realized that it worked better for just what i was focusing on so um, at least in Dolores, that's why I like my first poem there with Nymphette. um that was not originally my first poem in the chat book, um which ended up being really crazy because my my like a lot of people were like, well, like it makes sense that it's your the first poem right. it's like you're defining the whole concept, you're defining the whole problem, <laughs> um but sometimes you don't see that when you're writing it you you get tunnel vision a lot,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's amazing that that wasn't. Um, because it feels so much like a thesis of, of a poem. Uh, the other thing I found, one of the things I found very fascinating is that, um, the poems without titles on the poems themselves, but are in brackets in the contents is mm-hmm. something I've never seen before.
1: Um, yeah, so that's, uh, generally speaking, a lot of people will just put untitled,
0: <laughs> right. um,
1: for their poems. Um for me, I see I've never been a big fan of like titling things. Mm. I <laughs> I um if I title something, it means I I had a title in mind when I wrote it. Um if I don't title something, it's because I usually think I you know, it doesn't need a title. I am not and I one time I had a professor that said if you think that it doesn't need a title then Fuck the title. <laughs> um, and that honestly, that was like the best advice that I was given. So um, I wanted to still have like an indication of what the poem was. So I started doing that um, when I was submitting poems, where I was like, all right, I have this one poem, but it's not untitled because it isn't untitled, but it's also not titled. <laughs> so we're just going to go with like kind of the first line in a bracket um, because I, I, I always felt like, yeah, that's just the first part of the poem. I don't need a title because you just need to start here. <laughs> like, you know, I don't want something deflecting from the first line, but I also don't want the first line to be repeated. Mm-hmm. Um so, and that that to me is like both a choice of visually what is appealing to me. Like, I don't like if I am going to read a poem and the first line is the same thing as the title sometimes, I get a little bit um, frustrated by that because it feels very like, not to say that it's bad or anything like that, but I I generally feel like, like what was the purpose of it almost? like If it doesn't have a a specific reason as to why it's the title, it feels like, oh, we're just using this line over and over again without a reason and I think that if you're going to use repetition it has to be purposeful at least from that's how I approach it um, because repetition is very purposeful when I do it like I, there, I, I do it intentionally and I have a reason for it but yeah like I if I don't have a title for a poem I'm okay with not having a title for a poem I don't need to you know try to struggle late into the night thinking of a really good poem title. Um, Cause generally speaking, it, it, it doesn't do it for me. It's not, it's not a thing that, that I worry too much about.
0: <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, I briefly, briefly felt a little foolish as I was going through and I was like, oh yeah, the bracketed thing is just part of the first line or, or the first line entirely. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I'd like that. I, I also like the, the lowly tough part. Uh, too just the three prose poems um, just in succession because sometimes you'll you'll get the poetry book that has like numbered poems um, that feel like they shouldn't be numbered together (laughs) Um, yeah I like the segmenting of of the name
1: yeah I just I didn't I have never been, I like, occasionally I do it, but I've never been a fan of, like, numbering poems. I kind of figure, like, if something fits conceptually with it, I will just find a way to kind of conceptually make it work together. Like, I have a series of poems that I I call my mental sphere poems because I use a lot of language that um, references this concept of, like, this other almost like this other dimension so i'm like they're all categorized in this way even though they might not all be about the same thing or about the same um ideas but like they are about like this other you know mental state that you can be in so i've called it the mental sphere and mm. that's probably going to be like a title one day for <laughs> i've you i i definitely have some poems that are published like if um people have read some of my older poems, they'll notice that I, I tend to have um, I have this one poem called Ticket to the Mental Sphere. Mm. <laughs> and um, so like when I kind of generally, if I'm like, oh, yeah, these things just go together, I will just I won't say like, oh, part two or not always like once in a while I'll do it. But um, um, or I won't number them. I'll just be like, all right, they're conceptually going to be titled similarly because they are conceptually similar. <laughs>
0: I gotcha. Um. Oh, the other thing. This this is like apropos of nothing. Uh. But I I saw you you have the poem Aries, sun Scorpio moon, and as a person who who doesn't know anything about astrology aside from the fact that I am a Libra, I guess I guess I'm like three other things too. Um. I I find it fascinating how relatively quickly uh astrology has re-entered the the collective consciousness and i i I have access to you who has a poem that is an astrology reference so i I would like to hear your um take as to why that
1: might be so for me interestingly enough i actually uh i'm not a big believer in it (laughs) Right. I, I I don't um I'm not like the kind of person that thinks that, you know, um, all of those aspects dictate my entire life and personality. Um and that I need to find people with similar signs or appropriate, you know, signs to interact with and things like that. But I do have an interest in it and I and I do think it's very, very intriguing how we kind of dictate these categories for ourselves personality wise and i honestly think that the rise of it is more of a need to find perhaps from the generations like cuz i feel like it's a very like millennial type of thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> i do think that some gen xers are interested in it and i i i know that like definitely um you know the younger generations are are into it but i like I I think that millennials in general may have gotten into it maybe because of the rise of like really interesting esoteric stuff in the nineties and into the two thousands where you saw like a lot of that stuff become a little bit more mainstream um, in general. But I also think it was the need to find something that perhaps was a little bit more comforting or gave direction to some way, because like I wrote that poem in particular, Um, The idea behind it is that I'm an Aries sun, so that's, like, the birth month aspect. And um, my moon sign, which is, like, has to do with, like, the time that you're born and all this other stuff. (laughs) Hmm. Um, (laughs) Yeah, again, I'm not, like – like, I know it, and I'm sure, like, if anybody who's listening um, who has mutuals is probably really, really um, mad at me for not knowing the (laughs) – not knowing it at, uh, with the back of my hand type of thing. Um, I would say that, um, like it, it's, they're both fire signs. The idea is that like, that's your other sign. And then you have like a third sign and then you can potentially have like another, you know, set of signs. And I, I would say that I'm like half into it. Like I enjoy it, but I don't, um, it doesn't like dictate things for me, but I wrote that poem in particular because, um, the idea behind it was personality-wise. Um, theoretically, I should be a very outgoing, very um, boisterous individual, and I am not that kind of person. Um, but I am not that kind of person for a very, like, set reasons. Like, for, because of experience, mostly, mm-hmm. um, because I think that if you get to know me, I am a pretty boisterous person. I'm pretty opinionated. I'm pretty talkative, and things to that um, extent but I think that on a surface level and on an experience um, like on a day-to-day level like I'm not that kind of person um, in general and I thought that it was very interesting that like a lot of people are like oh yeah these are your signs you're this type of person and it's like I kind of am that kind of person but I'm not that kind of person and I wonder if like it was kind of like my way of grappling with this idea of identity of like how people perceive me. Cause it's like, am I the person that I am because of, you know, arbitrary things or am I the person that I am because of the experiences that I've had? And then there's this other level of how much has trauma changed who I'm supposed to be to some extent. Um, And how I'm meant to function and how you'll, you never get to really know that. Um, because you never really fully escape that. You never really fully, like, you can um, heal. You can definitely confront it. You can definitely um, learn to live with those things. But I think that it fundamentally just changes who you are as a person. So for me, that particular poem was, like, here are what people kind of expect of me. At the same time, I'm kind of dealing with and confronting this idea where it's, like, I'm not as fierce as I would like to be because of the traumas that I've experienced. Hmm. Um, so I like that was kind of my approach when I was writing it. But I think that a lot of people are because I wrote another poem recently um, that's referencing again that and then tarot, which is another thing that's like kind of made a comeback. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of people are into it. And again, I think it's it's a way to find, you know, some, some peace and direction in a directionless time. Um and after I lost my partner, um I, you know, which is very typical of people grieving, you know, scrambling to find something that's going to give them an answer. <laughs> right. Um and I pretty much went through just about everything <laughs> during a short period of time like I was like maybe maybe I'll start reading cards like maybe I'll do tarot maybe I will like maybe that will like I got some readings done even though I wasn't really fully convinced of it Um, I got really into um, astrology for like about a month Um, went back to like my religious roots (laughs) Um, left that again (laughs) brief Um, so I've kind of been all over the place as i've um been experiencing and dealing with my grief and um one of the poems that i recently wrote was like i don't believe in any of these things however i really enjoy the idea of something seeming like it does have the answer Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it like it does um like there is a a purpose or a reason or a rationale or a logic to to sometimes the illogical. Um, and even though I'm not fully embedded in that, um I think that's where a lot of people tend to be. I think that the last few years have been tumultuous for a lot of people, so it seems um, it seems almost kind of natural that that would be a thing, and I think that it is also probably a a group of individuals who are probably much more open to different people's backgrounds and experiences um, in a way that sometimes religion isn't always. Um, so maybe that's why it's kind of had its its rise. Like, you know, I know that there are certainly people who really, really do believe in it and really do trust it and are very spiritually evolved involved in it. And I, I don't wanna like discredit them by any means but i've i've always been um i always say like i'm a practicing agnostic i'm spe- i'm pretty skeptical of a lot of things um but i'm i'm willing to give most things a shot
0: <laughs> sure yeah the one of the things that popped into my mind right after i finished asking the question was i wanted to look into it more one time but i was looking at the charts and it seemed like too much math and I think that you know, looking for structure in a structureless time, uh, those things kind of tie together. And I, I actually have a tarot card app on my phone, and every once in a while, I'll do like the daily card thing. And I I like the idea of like applied randomness, that you can take pull something out of the chaotic system, you know, the time and date of your birth, um, and then form meaning around it based on like a set of rules that somebody else made. Uh, So, like, I get why people are into it, but I also find it uh, interesting that that's the thing that we're into. Especially when you get into, like, I don't know, like, cultural appropriation, things like that. Because I, like, have a hard time, like, pinning down where astrology came from. And, like, you know, like, the the Greek terms and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, well, I think that, too, an interesting thing is that... So many cultures practice it. <laughs> like so many cultures. Like it, even if you think, um, like for me at least, like experience wise, like I know for um, a lot of um, astrology is incredibly important to to Mayan culture. Um, mm. Depending on, especially depending on you know what particular Mayan you know tribe or group um, you're specifically you know focusing on. But in particular, they they were very you know. Um, They timed things, you know, according to their calendar that was based off of astrology. They built things based off of that. They um, built a lot of their stuff based off of mathematical. And I think that for them, culturally, there's a lot of ties to math and astrology in general, which makes sense Mm -hmm. Um, there. I, you know. To some extent, it's still stars and you're still thinking about the universe um, and there's still science involved, um, just kind of in a, in a different way. Um, so I think that culturally, it's just kind of maybe uh, I feel like it's almost natural for every culture, like every culture is going to engage in some aspects of astrology because it makes sense for us to look up at the sky and say, hey, those things are up there. They must have something to do with our lives. Um, I think that's a, maybe a human trait.
0: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of, it's sort of like a pre Judeo Christian sort of thing to be very involved with your relation to the sun and the moon, uh, and the planet, that like animistic sort of thing. Okay. Well, thank you. I know that you tried to tie that to your writing as much as possible, uh, And and I appreciate that (laughs) because I was uh, it was the most selfish question that I've asked today. Oh no, no, it's totally
1: (laughs) fine. I think I think honestly, I think that it's I think it's a mixture of things. I think that it is popular because people kind of need it. I think that it has had a rise. Like I don't know if you remember, like in the '90s, like those psychics on like late night tv yeah Miss cleo and things like that and i think that um kind of made it like i mean we've always kind of had that like um aspect of our culture especially in american culture um the slightly esoteric aspects um and i think that another aspect of it is that it was i think it just became marketable sure (laughs) I think that it became um, I think like, you know, the term aesthetic as like a a, not like as in like looking actually at aesthetics, but aesthetic as in like your brand, your your image, your visuals, your who you are as a person, um, identity aspects. I think that um, a lot of that really is tied up in consumerism and i think that a lot of people were able to kind of brand astrology as being like hey intellectual but like emotional but sensitive but critical kind of thing and they were able to kind of um jump off of that and turn that into like this kind of like millennial branding that exists um and i think honestly um probably why it got so popular too is like social media because it's so easy to share these ideas and to make memes out of them and to be like oh yeah that trait does fit me um kind of like uh without even questioning like you know the the fact that a lot of the language tends to be vague like i also have like a, a t- <laughs> the tarot i don't know if it's the if you have the the same one but i have the labyrinthos i think it is um mm. uh, uh, mine is tarot- golden thread oh uh oh it's the same company okay um yeah so um i it is the same company and i i do like sometimes like open it and be like you know checking um or like uh, pulling cards digitally and i'll be like wow this is like spot on this is very like bizarre and strange and then there are other times where i open it and i'm like this is so generic it could apply to anybody <laughs> right like, I'm just reading into it because I want to read into it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Like, honestly, I, I think it's, like, the the profit aspect that it became kind of, you know, just a part of, like, the the capitalistic machine. Part of me also wants to blame, like, Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, you know, she can, I think that, uh, she can be our scapegoat. She can be this generation scapegoat.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, somebody who has taken a lot of that kind of, um, I think the things that are meant to be self-reflections and have turned them into like very, very expensive over the top gestures.
0: <laughs> yeah which yeah something something there's something there there's something there about the internal that should be internal being made as external as possible there's something there
1: yeah i don't know what it
0: is yet i'm gonna write a book and that'll be that'll be the book (laughs) okay we we are near an hour oh my dog heard me say okay excitedly and now he's ready to go (laughs) (laughs) ready to party um we are nearing an hour this is the time where i i let you um do uh any sort of plugging that you want to do and or calls to action uh manifestoing or just saying i have a poem out in this magazine go check it out uh the floor is yours for that
1: all right. That's cool. Um, uh, unfortunately I don't have a manifesto prepared. <laughs> um, but for most people who would like to be, uh, look at my work, um, currently focused mostly on grief and, uh, trauma, um, recently had a mini chat book come out that's about religious trauma, <laughs> which is, you know, a whole other gambit. Um, And I have a few poems coming out. Most of my poems have been about um, dealing with the loss of my partner. Um, And I'm currently kind of like navigating how to deal with grief and language around grief. Um, Been looking at a lot of interesting um, documents, especially like grief etiquette stuff um, that I have a lot of issues with so if anything people are going to see me rant quite a lot about the language that we use around grief and the terms that we um or the expectations um or what i like to call performative grief like the idea that we have to constantly be performing our grief or constantly have our grief look in a certain way um and also the idea of like performing Um, moving on to some extent and how that's supposed to look at like so um, if people follow me or read any of my upcoming works you're going to see quite a lot of me tackling those particular ideas um, since that is currently on my mind Um, and then also in general um, want to remind people that um, it's still important to help and donate and, um, do what you can to help marginalized groups right now. Um, even though we're having a transition and, you know, there are lots of people who have mixed feelings about things, but please make sure that you are helping, you know, out who you can, when you can, being kind and wear a mask, please. I work in an ER, <laughs> wear a mask. <laughs> that's, that's probably the biggest, uh, platform. <laughs> I could uh, be on, but um, I do have some work coming out from another new calligraphy who also published um, 13 Jars. I'm going to be in their um, uh, Impossible Task uh, journals. Um, And then I have a few other things coming up soon, um, which is further out in the year, so I'm not going to get too ahead of myself. Um, but, um, if people want to follow me on Twitter to see what I'm working on, I would be really glad to have anybody who wants to put up with me. All right. So I'm going to be reading, um, a few poems from my chat book, um, which is, um, published by Glass Poetry Press, um, it's called Dolores in Spanish is pain. Dolores and Molida is a girl. Um, in particular, I'm going to be reading um, nymphet, which is the first um, uh, poem, and then I'm going to read um, a few other poems from there, and then I'm going to read one poem that I'm currently working on as well. Um, so it's an unpublished poem, but hopefully in the future it will be published. So, um, all right, this is nymphet. Nymphet defined as child, infant. Fetus, non-existent nymphets wear gloss all over their decomposing bodies. Nymphet sing morning songs, gasp of air, the soul leaving the body, the body leaving the girl. Nymphet wearing flower crowns, the ones that decorate funeral homes. Nymphets defined a suicide, sex crime, special victims unit, where Stabler and Benson can checklist, phone it in, sympathy, and act through tears. Nymphets are fictional. But the girls are still violent victims wading through their floral processions. Per- this is a poem called Message. Hello, I want to harass your mind space. He wants, he wants me. He wants me to forgive. When you tell a boy a secret, you'll hope he'll tuck it in a tooth. Hang it on his heartstring, Be a warmth, but boys fuck secrets. They take it and whip you with it. Hey, nymphet, I know you don't know very well. Let me slip salacious piercing wails into your mind space. You don't know. You can't know. And boys take solace in your disability of know and want you. To forgive when they misplace your secrets. And to take your words and fondle whatever space is left in between you and him until you say enough. I said enough. and I said. No. all right um, this is a poem that's untitled but um the first line is called the phone rings so the phone rings uterus calling have you heard the news on the streets we're writhing in riots the phone rings miss vacancy in your uterus is a sign of malcontent or miscommunication the phone rings misunderstandings of what the famine of femininity means you're an aries fire tongue willed and wistful fucking fruitful fucking famished the phone rings i'm staring at this tattered moon you call self in the sky and wishing angst or violence in your mouth is it ringing in your ears yet tinnitus is a symptom of derelict actions your uterus is rebelling will you fill it the phone rings you're an Aries, an Orpheus, an orphan, an empty and unmentioned hysterectomy. Silence slit across your wrists, bleeding only phantom dances. If not now, when, Ram? I disconnect the phone. Um, so this is a poem um, that is not in my chat book, <laughs> um, but it is called The First Transgression, and it is a older poem of mine, um, and it is a reference to Paradise Lost, so thought it would be nice to read. So the first transgression, hail, horrors! hail world, receive thy new possessor. And so God made Eve. Who does the speaking? Eve does the murmuring. What I was whence thither brought and how, what good to him is she like that? Flesh, flesh, flesh. It started with another sky. Who does the looking? Eve does the glimpsing. I looked mine eyes i looked a voice spoke flesh and flesh and flesh follow me and you he shall enjoy who does the speaking eve does the listening if i turn some worse way his wrath may find to my destruction him to enjoy his flesh his bones a hand seized mine i yield i yielded yield what can be worse than to dwell here here where pain of unextinguishable fires travails me without hope of end? Who does the looking? Eve with eyes of meek surrender. He in delight of her submissive charms. When in danger, it's natural to yield. And then it happens again. Eve in suspicion sleeps and wisdom wakes, night. Past nights I have dreamed have nightmared. Who does the dreaming? Eve does the sleeping. Here, words make gods of men and men of gods, for gods of body functions submit to men. IG, the parts of the brain where memory, emotion, and thinking are processed. Such nights have passed, a nightmare of men and gods, from the desire of God, men, and Eve to escape similar situations of men, God. Eve, the image, is best. Um, And then the last poems I'm going to read are actually poems that have been published recently. (laughs) Um, And they are about grief. Um, They're about my partner who I lost. Um, So um, one of them in particular is about um, hoarders. (laughs) Um, Both of us um, had to deal with um, a family member who was a hoarder. So every time you watch hoarders, you become infuriated. Four box sewing machines. Package after package fills the spaces in your childhood home. Mother was a hoarder. Mother dotes on unopened electronics. Mother doesn't allow you to use the fridge or the stove or the bathroom. Mother banishes you to a room upstairs. Every hallway becomes a museum to the unopened. Label makers, sewing kits, fabric, 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 mountains of unused office supplies, of kitchen utensils. Mother doesn't cook. Mother doesn't sew. Boxes and boxes and boxes. Mother yells at you when you need to get work done. Spare beds but no spare rooms. Curtains. 70s brown and orange print unpacked. Yellowed shirts still in their original packaging with a price label from 1978. All the spare rooms are just filled with objects. Shoes that never fit mother or her children. Books exercise machines, orange mold filling the bathroom, a fungus and stale air. Mother never listens or clean. Mother make tries to make you chew on dust. Mother collects, collects, collects. Mother never uses. Mother doesn't mother. And then the last poem that I'm gonna read is called, Oh My Eurydice. Um, so this is for my partner, my late partner, Dawn. An awful sound is at my shoulder. There is no ringing. No tinnitus. Eurydice. I knelt at your sound and have wept. I have kept the sound in a locked box. Kept the sound in my lungs. Eurydice. Did you hear the awful sound? Can you see it? When it left your lips? When it left my lips? The sound was hollow. Empty. Every step is the sound. Every shadow is the sound. Even your ashes ring with the sound. The awful sound of...